this is the school of theology. It is, am I right? This is the 15th. the 15th of October, the middle of October in the year 2014, the year of our Lord, 2014. And uh, we are studying the doctrine of anthropology. Uh, and welcome to one and all. Our, our opening scripture this evening is from Isaiah 45. Well, Isaiah 45. beginning in verse 9. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthen vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? begetting? Or to a woman, uh, to what are you giving birth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, Ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands, and I ordained all their host. I have aroused him in righteousness. I will make all his ways smooth. He will build my city and will let my exiles go free without any payment or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Here Isaiah is prophesying uh, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit with regard to Egypt. And there's a great irony. Welcome. There's a great irony in his language of referring to Egypt because, of course, the Egyptian captivity had happened in generations long before the day that Isaiah was living or the one that he was seeing or foreseeing coming to pass. And so part of the interesting irony here is the prophet's um, contemporary political linguistic misdirect where he's referring to Babylon by using the terminology and language of Egypt. And what he's doing is he's stressing the parallel that there is in the life of Israel between the Egyptian captivity and the Exodus on the one hand versus the Babylonian captivity uh, and the uh, restoration to the land on the other. Why would there be any encouragement? Welcome. Why would there be any encouragement in drawing a parallel between uh, the sojourn in Egypt for Israel uh, under Pharaoh eventually and then also the exile in Babylon in the far north um, why would there be a a comfort that would come to Israel in the parallel? You get out. You get out. Yeah. It's kind of like talking about the first time you went to jail while you're in jail the second time. And you're looking forward to getting out on parole and going back home. Okay? Uh, there is hope in that sense. Uh, but also, Isaiah is speaking of, because both are being spoken of in terms of judgment, but also the fulfillment uh, the word and the will of God. But particularly this evening, uh, we uh, set our theme uh, by hearing our Lord speak through his prophet in verse 12 of Isaiah 45, where he says, It is I who made the earth and created man upon it, stretched out the heavens with my hands, and I ordained all their hosts. God is asserting himself to be the great creator, and therefore uh, the great sovereign one. Uh, over our days and over our history. 
Well, in our study of man, we are continuing our progression through different topics. And, and last time we jumped over a couple of things to reach to a dramatic, um, musical, tantalizing uh, reason to come back next time, which was we heard a hymn uh, from early Mormonism. And uh, I will be reading a little bit from that hymn again as we get to the topic of the origin of the human soul so that we can contrast that false teaching, that uh, unbiblical teaching with the biblical text. But we have to go by way of the constitution of man. And let me just generally hit these high points again. Uh, what is man? What, what are human beings made of? Well, they're corporal and incorporal. There's body and there's soul. And our body is not, our body is inherently good as made by God in the garden. Man is not naturally mortal. Our first father, Adam, was made uh, in holiness and in righteousness. Death is something uh, that comes as a result of the fall, as a result of sin. God, if Adam had been obedient, would have never had death fall upon man. Um, we were made in order to be like God and to praise Him and serve Him eternally. And so man's uh, natural state is one that continues living in fellowship with God. And uh, our mortality is related to the penal nature of sin. I think I mentioned to you that I, I had a, a friend many years ago who grew up in a home. Uh, he was a medical doctor, but his father before him was a mortician. I'm not sure if it's good to go to a doctor whose father was a mortician. I, I need to think about that carefully. But um, uh, if it's the other way around, maybe it's okay. But, uh, and, and he used to assert quite boldly something he'd heard from his childhood from his father, that death is just natural. And, of course, in one sense, uh, that's true. Uh, this morning we, there was some conversation at our breakfast table about statistics. And uh, I uh, noted a correlation uh, between uh, people that own mountain houses and death rate. And I noted uh, around the breakfast table, you know, Everyone that has a mountain house seems to die. So does everybody eat healthy too? <laughs> so, the, the, of course, that kind of statistical correlation does not prove causality. Okay, so it's not that that uh, not owning a uh, mountain house is going to make you live uh, forever. Um, yes, it is true that in a fallen world we die. Uh, save some dramatic intervention by God where he whisks us to heaven, uh, either by chariots of fire or by uh, uh, translating us up, as in the case of Eno, uh, uh, Elijah and Enoch, uh, or uh, by the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's another matter. But uh, even he underwent death, and we all undergo death unless he comes again. Uh, the reality here, though, is, is that's not the normal state. Jesus weeps at Lazarus's tomb for good reason, because it's not the way it's supposed to be. There's something fundamentally offensive about death, because it undoes human nature. It removes body, uh, uh, separates body and soul. Um, there's no inherent conflict between the body and soul, even though we ourselves in a fallen estate, uh, we suffer uh, from internal confliction all the time. Um, we get conflicted within ourselves and about ourselves and about our family and about our community and about our world. We get conflicted about ourselves and about one another and about God. Um, that kind of internal tension and incompatibility is something that is just 
part of a fallen world, but it was not that way from the beginning. The soul of Adam before the fall, the soul of Eve before the fall, in the garden, in a state of righteousness, was not in uh, conflict with the body. And uh, uh, the body in a fallen state with a fallen soul in a fallen world does itself become depraved, uh, but yet the body is still the body of the person even when the soul and body are separated. And resurrection is bodily. Let me gently say, I had somebody um, recently email me. I've, I've, I've recently, from a number of different sources, received some very disturbing emails. You know, to keep up with Fred Greco, I have three screens in my office. I have the one I use, and then right next to it, I have an old one that he used to have. And I have it there, and I hardly ever put anything slid over to it. But I just have it there because he has two, and so I need two. <laughs> and if I leave my laptop open, that makes three. And that's a little better than he does because he has two, so that makes me feel better even though I only use one. And um, one or two times he's been in my office and somebody has sent me an email and we're sitting there talking and I'll click on it. And one time it was a picture of uh, a, a medical uh, uh, situation from a, from a hospital or a hospital bed. And, and he, he screamed when he saw it. And, and then when I turned around and I looked at it, I, I wanted to scream too, and I cut it off. It was just—it was heartbreaking. It was just—it was revolting. Uh, today, somebody forwarded me some kind of pictures of uh, what these ISIS people are doing, where they're cutting heads off and putting them on spikes, and and they sent me picture after picture in this long thing of these of decapitated bodies. I mean, it was very difficult to look, very disturbing. And uh, I looked at this, and I, I shut it off, and I. I thought to myself, I only am familiar with one other time. I mean, I'm not a great historian, but I am familiar one other time down in church history, through church history, where this kind of thing happened, uh, and that was in Edinburgh, Scotland, where I studied. Um, the uh, Anglican authorities from England showed up to enforce the king's will, and in the grass market they hung, over a number of years, 10,000 people. <coughs> And then they chopped their heads off and their hands off and they put their heads and their hands on the spikes at the top of the wall around the city in order to terrorize and intimidate uh, the Presbyterians. And my, my point simply is is that seeing a body be mishandled like that is, is offensive. And the reason is, is because the body, even though the soul is not there, it's still the body of that person. It's still made in the image of God and to mutilate it for no reason or as a form of terrorism is very heartbreaking and upsetting. So the body is part of the constitution of man. Secondly, the soul is uh, its metaphysically differentiated from the body. It itself is not subject to death in the sense that it's not extinguished. Well, uh, the soul is not, it's the incorporeal aspect is not extinguished. Um, Death is not the end. And this is one of the best arguments, practically and theologically speaking, uh, against suicide to someone who is depressed and is thinking about suicide. Death is not the end. The soul continues to live. Go ahead and deal with what the problems are. Get the help you need. Uh, it is not actually a way of escape into nothingness because it's not nothingness. Um, uh, uh, the soul itself is not subject to death. The parables make that clear. The resurrection of our Lord makes that clear. Um, the fact that he brought Lazarus from the dead makes that clear. Um, the soul uh, uh, does not cease to exist just because it separates from the body. And this disembodied state for the soul 
called the intermediate state is one in which there's personal continuing personal identity, consciousness, and memory. Uh, the person is still themselves, and there is uh, some self-relation uh, that is still clear and present there. So, so we have the body and we have the soul, and, and we need to remind ourselves of the fact that two are meant to go together. Human being is found in its proper state in the union and communion of body and soul together. And uh, uh, so death is something which, by definition, is a metaphysical offense. Uh, and then, secondly, I want to emphasize that uh, there is there are two things about uh, the nature of man. That is, is man body and soul, or, uh, corporal and incorporal? Is the incorporal aspect made up of one thing, or is it made up of two things? Is, is man body and soul or spirit, whichever one you want to call it, or is man made up of body, soul, and spirit? as if soul and spirit are two completely different things or fundamentally different things. And and there have been a couple of texts that folks have latched on down through the years in order to teach a trichotomous position. Uh, The Confession of Faith, uh, uh, the Westminster Confession, doesn't uh, necessarily take an absolute uh, uh, strong line against trichotomy, but really the, the, the majority understanding of the Christian church in light of Scripture has been rather than a trichotomous position that, that there really is a dichotomous position that you have corporal and incorporal you have body and soul or spirit the two terms soul and spirit being used interchangeably in the scriptures both in the Old Testament and New except for these two verses now if I can have help from you in looking these up Hebrews 4.12 and 1 Thessalonians 5.23 can somebody help me with Hebrews 4.12 and then somebody else read 1 Thessalonians 5.23 I got Thessalonians. Okay, go ahead with Thessalonians. Okay. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. So there you have um, body and soul and spirit, all three mentioned in the same verse. Um, But of course, is this a verse which is a part of a discourse on the nature of man and anthropology, or is it a, uh, uh, or is it a, uh, a benedictory kind of statement? It's uh, actually a part. It's before the benediction, but it's part of your new self. Okay, so it's it's, uh, <laughs> it's something making reference to a, the regenerate state of right. man. All right, Hebrews four twelve. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. All right, so here once again, um, uh, the three terms used and and piercing down to some sort of division between two. You you have to remember that that with two passing scripture references, given that they're being, being written and read in a context of Greek philosophical thought, where in some cases you did have a trichotomist view of man, um, uh, you have to face the question of whether this is an active, positive, clear uh, attempt to inculcate a tripartite understanding of anthropology or whether what is happening is an illustrative emphasis kind of use where you have 
uh, the surrounding culture and thought uh, being used as as part of the emphasis, piercing down to that deeper level, um, and a piling on of terms, even terms that are equal ultimately within the Christian faith, uh, in order to draw distinction uh, on the emphasis, but not necessarily inculcating with regard to the anthropology. Um, I think I think I would take a very gentle approach to these two uh, kinds of passages, given the uh, the fact that the others use the terms both in Greek and Hebrew of soul and spirit interchangeably. I think these are merely illustrative uh, uh, in their emphasis and use, and not uh, inculcating for us a, a trichotomist view of man. Um, the wider witness of the Scripture emphasizes for us the unity of man's person. And so you don't end up with this idea that you may have a spirit but lose a soul or have a soul and lose a spirit. Um, it's corporal and incorporeal, and these two parts go together. Um, the seed of spiritual exercise is seen in the, more generally in the incorporeal aspect rather than sub and contrasting parts. Explain that, will you? Spiritual exercise. Um, the, the idea that... Uh, you can have outward bodily devotion, like uh, would be symbolized or, or, or represented in bowing down or in confessing. The act of worship. The act of worship in okay. some outward physical sense versus the inward spiritual reality, okay. which uh, you can just give face service, you know, with bodily motion. But it's a matter of the of the inward man and the inward parts. Okay. And then, and the major contrast being between the natural and the spiritual. Uh, in man, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the contrast between the natural and the spiritual, as uh, the Apostle Paul is um, uh, discerning the fact uh, that the will and mind of God is revealed by the Spirit, so too uh, there's a parallel natural aspect of man versus spiritual aspect of man, uh, which comes as a part of regeneration through the Holy Spirit. So, so the point here is, is that the trichotomous emphasis is one that uh, there doesn't seem to be a wider buttressing positive didactic element. Um, in other words, if, if the text is attempting to teach trichotomy, um, it seems to be missing the elements that would make it rise above alluding to a trichotomy. Yes. Now, we can talk... And maybe it's the the word spirit, because you can say, you know, you don't want to destroy the child's spirit or something like that. And you're talking about kind of a mental capacity. We really aren't talking about... Or an element of personality. Yeah, Yeah. we're not talking about the soul at all. It's more of the natural part of him. And I don't know how we always interpret that word spirit in Scripture or how the Greek does. It... um, uh, as I say, because the because the vast majority of uses in both Hebrew and Greek use the two terms interchangeably in parallelism, for example, in the Psalms. Uh, but they never use spirit just to refer to man. Well, you can soul. you can always use a part to refer to the whole, and so that's not definitive. Um, uh, for example, you have that even with regard uh, to references to the body. At John chapter one and at Hebrews chapter two, um, if you look at John chapter one in light of Hebrews chapter two, Hebrews chapter two says, "Since the children share in flesh and blood, 
he himself likewise also partook of the same. So you have the language of flesh and blood. But then you go back to John, and all it says is, and the word became flesh. All right, so if you know, we can't use a hermeneutic that would force you to draw the conclusion that John thought that the incarnation was bloodless. Um, if, if you tap John on the shoulder uh, and say, John, hold it, what, 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 what are you saying here? Um, and he gave you an Engl- a, a, gramma- a grammarian's answer, a linguist's answer, the answer would be, I'm using a part for the whole. I'm referring to flesh, and everybody knows that living human beings have flesh and blood, and so I mean that he has flesh and blood. He's not trying to didactically inculcate that Jesus lacks blood. Yeah, quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. So, and you can prove that from internally in the joining corpus, because uh, John is quoting Jesus at great length, only 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 about four chapters away, five chapters away, saying, uh, "You must eat my blood, eat my eat my flesh, and drink my blood." I mean, there's a clear reference to both, as well as in the crucifixion, the blood of Christ. So this is a this is a hermeneutical matter. I, I don't want to uh, trouble mind and heart, but I want to caution you that it is not uncommon in certain traditions to not derive a distinction between soul and spirit from the Bible, but rather to use that linguistic difference in order to read two radically different categories of aspects of human being into each one as airtight compartments and then try to draw some eschatological idea that you get to keep your soul but you lose your spirit, you get to keep your spirit, you get to lose your soul. One example of this is in the heresy of uh, uh, um, Apollinarianism uh, where someone very creatively decided that the solution to the problem of how the incarnation occurs is to say that Jesus has a body that's human. He has a soul that's human. But his spirit is not a human spirit. It is the Holy Spirit. And uh, the church fathers rightly responded to that teaching by saying that if he doesn't have a human spirit, if he only has a divine spirit, the Holy Spirit, then... He's lacking a key part of human nature because in Greek philosophy, spirit, human spirit, is where mind was centered. And therefore, our minds are not redeemed because if he has not assumed that in the incarnation, the unassumed is the unhealed. It means redemption to an impact. And also, if Jesus were simply the, the Holy Spirit in a human body, wouldn't that leave only two persons of the Trinity? Well, it does raise some very interesting questions. So you get sense. some later groups that retreat to the idea, well, we didn't mean Holy Spirit, we just mean Divine Spirit in a vague way, which again doesn't really answer the question in relationship to person. So uh, um, this is an aspect of um, uh, of uh, Debates that are ongoing in anthropology. I would, I will say that in our own modern culture today, tension is occurring in this area, not so much over dichotomy and trichotomy. I, I don't know, I don't know, Bob. I, I, I don't know of any mainline people that are into Greek trichotomy. Uh, it's only in in 
in uh, fundamentalist circles that you'll occasionally run into somebody that way. Uh, or someone who is tenaciously trying to hold on to a certain Greek father or something and, and claim a high degree of continuity. But, but, but the thing that's happening today is due to the genetic revolution that's occurring, um, the whole category of corporal and being hardwired by your genetics is raising a fundamental doubt as to whether there is an incorporal aspect of man at all. So that's in a, in a now that's where the pressure's coming uh, in, in the marketplace. And so these kinds of classic debates over dichotomy and trichotomy are at the other end of the spectrum. Um, we've never been able to measure spirit. Yeah, I mean, it's not like you can... There, there's the whole thing on Ghostbusters where they got a little detector. We don't have those. We just don't have those. Um, and so we have to re-examine the trichotomous text, remembering the hermeneutical question, are these words being used for emphasis, or is there an attempt, an unambiguous attempt, a clear attempt to inculcate a teaching about the constitution of man uh, that is just probably not found elsewhere? Um and then previously, I noted for you, in the uh, we jumped ahead, and on the origin of the soul, the question is, where does the incorporal aspect of man come from? And there are, there are two classic positions. One is the position of traducianism, sometimes called by the nickname realism. And that is the idea that your body somehow has your soul either in it or attached to it or potential in it. And not just your soul, but also the souls of all of your future posterity. That is creepy. And uh, um, can you guess where in the Bible, I'll make it easier, where in the New Testament, I don't know, it's a, it's a New Testament set of passages citing Old Testament passages, out of Genesis actually. It's in the book of Hebrews, citing back something from Genesis. Where where could you get fodder for that kind of idea that if you are a, a father and a grandfather and a great-grandfather, that your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren got their spirit somehow... From you. <coughs> it's in the uh, passages where it deals with, where it talks about Abraham uh, paid tithes you know, to Melchizedek or something. I, I don't. Uh, I think it was Levi paid tithes. Yeah, Levi paid tithes to Yes, it's, it's the whole issue of, of what is the posture of Abraham towards Melchizedek. So when you talk about Melchizedek, you know, you've got Genesis. Uh, with the encounter with Melchizedek. You have uh, Psalm 110, but you have Hebrews 5 and 7 particularly. And uh, uh, in Hebrews chapter 7, um, Melchizedek's priesthood is being teased out, and the emphasis is, is made. It's noted that, uh, Abraham, that through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. That's Hebrews seven, eight, or uh, uh, nine and ten. Hebrews seven, nine and ten. 
And so the best argument I know of for traditionism is this passage in Hebrews and the use it makes of earlier references to Melchizedek back in Genesis, where Abraham bows down, and since Levi is going to be a descendant of Abraham, and since since Aaron and Levi are going to be priests, but yet, or Levi is going to be a priest, but yet he's bowing down in his great great grandfather to uh, Melchizedek. Melchizedek's priesthood is superior because Levites, as it were, pay tithes to Melchizedek, not the other way around. And uh, theologically, my answer to that tantalizing possibility of thought is, gee, that's weird. And it raises a whole host of questions about personal identity and responsibility. And is it a literary thing that's being referred to? Or is it a line of authority that's being referred to? Or is it a crass, physical, genetic ontological reality about the constitution of man that whatever spirit Reed, Arthur, and Susan have they mostly or partly got it from me in some physical sense like I got like I got three quarters in my pocket and each one when they're born they get one but yet inside my own genetics or inside my own being in some sense how is it other than representatively that um, Levi could be in the loins of Abraham and so bow down. Um, well, I guess, you know, to me, if you look back at Genesis, you know, God made man out of dust and ground, up on the ground. He breathed his spirit into him and he became a living soul. From there on out, it's all through propagation. Somewhere, somehow, the ability to propagate the species, which is not just body, mm-hmm. was, you know, part of creation. Is that number, item number two? Yes, and that is that is the majority classic opinion of the church, which is to teach creationism. And creationism here is being used, that term is being used not to refer to six-day creation, but it's being, referred, being used to refer to the origin of the human soul. Where did Reed, where did, I'll pick on Arthur, where did Arthur's soul come from? He didn't get it from his mommy, per se. He didn't get it from his daddy, per se. He didn't get it kind of half and half from mommy and daddy, per se. Now, his body, he did get from there. But his soul was immediately created by God and implanted in his little body at the time of conception. Mm-hmm. And And part of the Part of the biblical logic for that is, for example, to use the Psalms and to look at Psalms like Psalm 71 that I opened up Sunday evening for you. And uh, in Psalm 71, uh, there's the clear language about um, uh, uh, from uh, before I was born, uh, the Lord... See, I got the wrong Bible here. It's not the one I preach out of. Um, How can you have a wrong Bible? Well, I've, I've got the wrong publish. And the wrong, it doesn't have my... Uh, everything's not in the place. It's, it's supposed to be. Verse 6. By the time... By, by, uh, yeah, by thee I have been sustained from my 
by uh, from my birth. Thou art He who took me from my mother's womb. I pr- my praise is continually of Thee. Um, and there's a later reference in the psalm back to his birth and before his birth. So the, the idea here being that he is a real person even before he's born into the world. That is, from the point of his conception forward, uh, he is he is uh, indeed got his he is a, a singular person. So the idea here would be that God creates a soul and implants it in the body at, at the time of creation. One of the old Southern Presbyterians put it beautifully, and I would commend this to you as a way to think about your families, especially if you're young. That's right. Um, a husband, a Christian husband and the wife have the privilege of cooperating with God in the creation of new life. It's not just the activity of two people. God is also active there. And God is the one creating and implanting the soul. And that helps us see something of the sacredness of uh, the propagation of the race. It's something that God is uh, marks as special. And uh, he has a right, because of his involvement, it says something about him in one way or another. Um, have there been those who have held to a more realistic tra- tra- uh, traditionist kind of position? Yes, there have been, but they just end up with a lots of other theological questions they have to explain. For example... How is it that some people get more souls that they carry down, you know, that get carried down through the ages than others? Because, you know, family lines can end. Not every family has. And, and, and how is it that having babies is already completely calculated? Not just from an eternal decree standpoint, but from a, a physical standpoint, that there is this certain quantity necessary. And uh, in order to make sure that you don't conceive a child that ends up with no soul. And what happens to all those kind of pre-souls that, that, that never got bodies because the family line got cut off, somebody died early? These are these are classic and difficult questions. Well, that's, that's where the Mormons have that answer, right? Right, and that's why that's why you have the Mormon idea of the they call it the Queen of Heaven, but of course that dodges the reality. They don't believe in the Queen of Heaven. They believe in the Queens, plural of Heaven. They believe in polygamy uh, in the higher realm, and they trace their own origin before they're born, before they're conceived, the origin of their own soul back to this heavenly family. A polygamous family uh, up in the sky above. Um, o my Father, Thou that dwellest in the high and glorious place, when shall I regain Thy presence and again behold Thy face? In Thy holy habitation did my spirit once reside. In my first primeval childhood was I nurtured by Thy side. That is that is language which is not Christian and not biblical. It uh, is a denial of a Christian, traditional Christian doctrine of creationism, and it's the idea that spirit children are created in the heavenly realm through the intercourse of these spiritual beings, these ascended beings, and then these spirit children are there crying out to be placed in bodies. And so if you want to ask the theological questions, why do Mormons have so many kids? It's because of the need to enflesh these spirit children that are there waiting. 
And uh, again, that creates a whole new kind of difficulty when it comes to eschatology because the, the tune which this was set to is all about death. And, and the, the words here even are reflecting on, will I return? It's talking about death. And so the reality is then your soul goes to this other realm and uh, you lose a proper conception of the bodily resurrection. So the origin of the soul, either all of our souls originate with God breathing into Adam and they've been propagated down, physically down through the centuries, or uh, God immediately creates and and, uh, combines or or unifies that that soul that he creates, that incorporeal aspect with uh, the little body, even the one-celled body that the parents are conceiving. So let me ask you this. So if if the soul originates with God, how is it that the little tiny bundle of joy is born sinful? I mean, are you telling me that God creates a sinful, wicked, fallen soul? De Novo? You said it was a bipartite transaction, the human transaction and, and the spiritual theological transaction. So the we get the gene passed on if you want to. The corruption the corruption and pollution and even the guilt it, it comes from us. Um, the whole issue of personhood uh, there uh, is also in view. We are human persons who were federally in Adam. When he fell, we fell. And therefore, um, God may create a soul perfect for us, but the moment that we are uh, enfleshed, that is, our, our soul is, is created and placed in this body, and uh, we are a human person. We're a human person who is in Adam and therefore is a broken sinner. No wonder we're so uncomfortable all the time. Yeah, we're, it's from the very beginning. It's from the very beginning. There was no earlier uh, celestial paradise to be near the side of God and have everything fine until we kind of uh, got birthed down here. So to speak. Like those commercials with the two All right. Well, let's take a break for five minutes and then we'll come back.